Good morning, everyone. Uh, we're starting a new series of sermons this morning on the Minor Prophets. These uh, are the last 12 books of the Old Testament. And they're shorter than the other prophetic books in the Old Testament, which is why we call them the Minor Prophets. They're minor not because they're lesser, just because they are shorter. And uh, the prophets had a very particular and a very important work among God's people. They were not born into it like most of the religious establishment. They were called into it directly by God. And they were the people who were set apart to speak to everyone, sometimes to the religious establishment, sometimes to the kings and the leaders, sometimes to foreign powers, sometimes directly to the regular people. Their job was to call God's people back to fidelity and back to faithfulness, and they did this often by pointing out corruption and hypocrisy and oppression and injustice and just general rotten dehumanizing behavior wherever they saw it, no matter who it was that was doing it. And as uh, you might guess, this made them often unpopular. Many of them died for doing this. Um, but that's not all that they did. The, the prophets preached grace, too. They were the preeminent preachers of grace. And they painted Scripture's most arresting pictures of the grace of God setting this whole world right and restoring us into the people that we were made to be. So we have a lot to learn from the minor prophets. I look forward to talking about them together with you over the next few months. And we're going to start this morning by looking at the prophet of Jonah. Now, the prophet of Jonah, the book of Jonah, is an anomaly among the minor prophets because instead of being a collection of what the prophet preached, it is uh, instead a story uh, about the prophet's life. So I'm going to read Jonah 4 for us this morning. It is the ending of the story of the book of Jonah. It also happens to be where all of the emotional and theological weight of the story hits. So I'll read Jonah 4. You can follow along in the order of worship or in a Bible, or you can just listen as I read from Jonah 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he could see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, 
it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? This is God's word, and it was given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask that you would use these ancient words that we've just read and heard together that we're going to talk about to take us by the hand and show us the word who is incarnate, our elder brother Jesus, who is seated in his risen power at your right hand, praying for us, wearing our flesh. Father, show us his grace and change us by it. Make us to look more like him, to love more like him, and to live more like him. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, other than uh, this book, the book of Jonah, Jonah gets just one more uh, mention in Scripture. Just one more. Uh, it's in the book of Second Kings, and there we find out that Jonah was a prophet uh, in the northern kingdom of Israel under the reign of a king named Jeroboam II. It happened to be a period of almost unparalleled prosperity in the northern kingdom of Israel, but none of that is really super relevant at all to the book of Jonah because in the first few verses of the book of Jonah, uh, God asks Jonah to leave Israel and to make the five or six hundred mile journey to one of the capital cities of Assyria called Nineveh. God tells Jonah to go out to that great city and to call out against the great city because the evil of that place had come up before him. That's the first couple verses of the book of Jonah. Now, that seems like a pretty uh, juicy assignment for a prophet. And here's why. Um, because for almost a 100 years, the people of Israel had been paying tribute money to the kings of Assyria. That's like giving the bully your lunch money before he roughs you up and steals it from you. That's, that's what was going on. This tribute money was essentially a bribe to keep Assyria from invading their land and destroying their crops and their livelihoods and killing a bunch of them and carrying them off into exile because that's what Assyria was doing all over the place in that part of the world at the time. Assyria was the ascendant empire of the day. And as military cultures go, it was wildly bloodthirsty and cruel. So these are the enemies of God's people. It is a very safe bet to imagine that the people of Israel, most of them, loathed and dreaded the Assyrians. So Jonah, Jonah gets the call to go and give them the business. What could be better than that? And if by some miracle the people there repented and started worshiping the true God, I mean, how could it get any better than that? I mean, you'd think that given that this guy Jonah is a prophet, that that's his whole job is to go and speak this kind of word to people, that he would be all over it and he would leave right away. But if you're familiar with the story, you know that's not how it goes. 
Instead, Jonah boards a ship and he heads in the opposite direction, away from Nineveh. And the reason that we're given for his flight away is pretty amazing. It's not because he was afraid of what might happen to him in Assyria. It's not because he doesn't want to go on that really, really long journey. It's not because he had some other obligations in Israel. No, we're told not once, not twice. We were told three times in the first ten verses of the book that Jonah did what he did to flee away from the presence of the Lord. (laughs) It's not about Assyria. It's not about the city of Nineveh or the people who are in it. There is something about God that Jonah is running from. And that's the essence of the book of Jonah. I think it's an invitation for people like us to think about how much of Jonah we might have in our own hearts. So if you've ever read a children's Bible or you ever went to Sunday school when you were a kid, you probably know how the next part of this story goes in Jonah's life. Even if you didn't do either of those things, there is still a good chance you may know how the next part of Jonah's life goes. It does not go well for Jonah. It is not great. There is this huge storm on this ship that he is on, fleeing away from the presence of God. And while Jonah is below deck, sawing logs, the the pagan mariners are fearing for their lives above board, and they are getting religion super fast up there. And they go and they wake Jonah up, and they talk with Jonah about what's going on, and Jonah realizes this whole storm is, is his fault, and he convinces them to throw him overboard in order to save their lives, and reluctantly they do. And that's when God prepares this great fish to entomb Jonah. And that's where God saves his life in this really strange, strange way. And while Jonah is in the fish, she realizes that it's God who has saved him, and he prays this incredible prayer of thanks. It is this incredibly genuine, incredibly heartfelt prayer of thanks. That's what Jonah chapter 2 is all about. It's just Jonah's prayer. And it's beautiful, but oddly, (laughs) there's nothing in it about being sorry for running away from God. So Jonah is spit out. God commissions him again to go to Nineveh. And Jonah goes, finally, to the great city of Nineveh. And when he gets there, this is what he says. This is... This is it. (laughs) Yet 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. That is it. That's the, the sum total of the preaching output of Jonah. Yet 40 days, and this place is going to get turned upside down. There's nothing about repentance. There's no hope that things could be different for these people. There is no compassion for them. And maybe the weirdest of all, there is no mention of God in that sermon. So he's in Nineveh, but it is clear he's just checking off a box, doing whatever he can to save his skin from trouble. And as it turns out, all of this is a setup for what is pretty unthinkable (laughs) 
the people of Nineveh believe. <laughs> the people of Nineveh believe God. And they call for this huge fast that includes everyone in the city from the greatest to the least of them. And God, for his part, has compassion on them. And he relents from the disaster that Jonah had promised would come to them. Now, if you're a prophet, I mean, this is basically an A++ result. I mean, this is maybe the best day of your life. This is a job that is well done, that is wildly successful. This is like go home and put your feet up and give yourself a pat on the back because this could not have worked out better than it did. So we might expect for the book of Jonah to end with Jonah going back home, a, a man who has learned humility, a man who is grateful, a man who is maturing, a man who did what God wanted him to do, delighted with the fact that the people of Nineveh are sisters and brothers to him, overflowing with praise at the grace of Yahweh. But man, that is not how the story ends. It takes a really strange and really sad turn. This whole thing displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. Instead of returning home happy, he camps out in the desert and he crosses his fingers and he hopes God will destroy the place anyway. Instead of being thankful to God, he accuses God and he asks God to kill him. And so it's here at the end of the book of Jonah that we find out that the story of Jonah is not really about Jonah, the reluctant prophet who gets turned around. The story of Jonah is not even about the mighty and violent city of Nineveh turning to God. This is where we find out that the book of Jonah is about God. It's about what he loves the most and what he cares about the most, and who he cares about the most. It's about his identity, who he is. And so that means it's about something else, too. (laughs) It's about what people like us think about that God, and the way that he is, and what he loves, and how we live with him. So Jonah is our entrance into the story. He leads us by the hand into places that I think are pretty good for us to go. So back to furious Jonah, we finally get to find out here at the end of the story why he ran away from the presence of God in the first place. He prays, and this is what he said, Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my own country? (laughs) This is why I made haste to flee away from you in the first place. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. In other words, I knew this was going to happen because I know who you are, God. I knew that you were going to show them grace, and now I am so angry that I want you to kill me. Kill me now, God, because it would be better for me to be dead than alive. I mean, why, why, why would Jonah ever, 
ever say anything like this? Well, let me suggest a couple reasons. And they're reasons that I hope we can maybe try on for size ourselves. The first is that Jonah, he wants Nineveh to pay. He wants them to pay. Jonah wants justice so badly that he can taste it. And I think if Jonah could have destroyed that city with his own hands, he would have tried to destroy that city with his own hands. He can hardly believe that God won't do it. I mean, these are the enemies of God's people. These are an incredibly, incredibly violent, horrific people. The culture was horrific. Stuff happened under Assyria's reign that if you read it, it makes your skin crawl. So when Jonah looks at Nineveh, he sees this incredible sickness. He sees the enemies of God's people, and he wants them to pay. Now, Jonah has just described God as gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, relenting of disaster. And here's what's really important for us to know. That description of God is not a description that Jonah made up. That is how God describes himself. That's how God revealed himself to Moses before he gave him the law in Exodus 34. And when Moses heard this, it was like he couldn't even believe it. When Moses heard God describe himself in this way, he did what I think was the right and sane and reasonable and good thing to do when you hear that God is like that. <laughs> Moses falls down on his face and he says, God, please just stay here. Go out in the midst of the people. Please, please, please. If that's who you are, we want you forever. <laughs> we desperately need you. Stay with us forever. Never leave us. It was a beautiful moment and dear to God's people. It was a cherished part of their identity. So this is what's going on. When Jonah sees, when Jonah sees that God shows that kind of grace to another people, a people who he is certain are not worthy of it, he literally wants to die. As far as Jonah is concerned, they don't deserve grace. They deserve justice. And here's the truth, church. Whenever there is injustice, whenever there is violence, whenever there is oppression that are present in our world that we can see, there is something deep inside every single one of us that wants what Jonah wanted in that moment. We want to see those things be put away. We want to see those things end. And that's fine. That's part of being human. That is how we are made. We feel that way because we have been created to feel that way in the image of God. We feel that way because justice and peace are real things and we have been made for them. <laughs> and the whole world has been made for them. And when they're not present, we know deep in our bones that something is missing. That's true. Because that's just part of being human. And as Christians, part of that call that we have in our lives is to establish God's just and peaceable and gracious kingdom here on earth like it's established in heaven. This is what Jesus told us to do. And we work alongside Jesus when we are doing that. But here is what we have got to see. We've got to see that Jonah is not working alongside God when he breaks off into his furious rage. 
when Jonah breaks off into his furious anger and rage, he is starting to play God. He is trying to be God. And he's angry. And he's angry because God isn't like him. You know, God, if you were just a little more like me, I wouldn't be so angry. Jonah is absolutely sure what Nineveh needs, and he is just as sure that God isn't going to give it to him, and he thinks they should pay. And if he can't play God, he'd rather die. It is messed up. And it is shamefully, shamefully self-righteous. So here's the thing, church. We live in a wildly self-righteous age. Our culture is a cacophony of self-righteous voices and self-righteous actions. It makes me feel so old to say this, but I feel like it's become this, this anger, this preening self-righteousness has become our default setting. Maybe, maybe it always was, and now we've just dropped the pretense. I, I don't know. But what I do know is that the preponderant voices in our culture, and I, it doesn't matter where they come from, right, left, everywhere in between, religious, non-religious, agnostic, popular, academic, the preponderant voices in our culture have never sounded so sure of themselves and so strident and so angry. It's like anger is currency now. And we're flush with it. And wherever there is anger, humility and grace are almost always stamped out. And so in this way, Jonah and his story is a gut check to us. It's a gut check to you and me. It's a gut check to the way that we talk to each other about the things that we care about, especially with those with whom we disagree. It is a gut check to the anger and the vitriol we just put out there on social media. It's a gut check to think about what is this that I am consuming? What are the media that I am consuming and feasting on and being shaped by? It is a gut check to our motivations. Not because the goal is being nice, easygoing people, but because the goal is being gracious, humble people who are not trying to play God in this world by angrily choking out justice, the justice that we want, by angrily going around and choking it out of everyone and everything with the words that we say, and the things that we do. Because, church, the, the truth remains. It's always been this way and will always be this way that justice ultimately does not rest in our hands. It is not ours to repay. It is not ours to exact vengeance. 
these things rest with God because only he can truly satisfy justice. Not just in the messed up, broken world around us, but in our own messed up and broken hearts. And here's the good news, church. He has dealt with it, and he will deal with it. It just doesn't look anything like we expect it to look. Which, of course, Jonah is learning firsthand. (laughs) It leads to the second reason I think Jonah is so, so angry and so miserable. He is miserable because he has a bad memory. Jonah has forgotten something pretty important there outside of the city of Nineveh. He has forgotten that he should be dead. (laughs) If justice had been served to Jonah, Jonah Jonah-style then he would not be alive to say these angry things to God. He would be lying in repose at the bottom of the sea. But God isn't just slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and gracious and merciful to the Ninevites. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and gracious and merciful to silly prophets too. I mean, here Jonah is. He's straight on the heels of this incredible wild deliverance This the most miraculous moment of grace that he'll probably ever have in his life, he'll ever know personally, and his memory completely short circuits. He forgets the grace of God in his own life. He forgets his own forgiveness. And so he is incapable of forgiving. He forgets the grace that was shown to him and becomes incapable of being gracious. And I don't know about you, but that is painfully, painfully familiar to me. We have furtive, fleeting, forgetful hearts. I mean, we can celebrate the grace of God to us one minute and then turn around the next minute and start angrily choking people out. We become the Jonah of our own hearts, the twisted, grotesque parody of what it means to follow Jesus. And so, church, that's why what we're doing right here, right now, that's why this is incredibly important for our lives. It's critical for our lives. That's why worship is important. That's why us being here to worship together every week is incredibly, critically important. Because the antidote to fleeting hearts, to forgetful hearts, is to train those hearts to remember. And that weekly rhythm of what we do in worship is being reminded and renewed and feasting on the grace of God to us in Jesus. When we gather together every week, this common worship that we have together, that's what we're doing. We are remembering, we are feasting, we are remembering, we are feasting. And that remembering needs to be extended out into our daily lives. It needs to bleed out into the rest of the week through the practice of the Christian disciplines. We talked about some of them during Lent. If you weren't here or you need a reminder, you can go back and listen to them. These things are critically important to us because the antidote to fleeting hearts, to forgetful hearts, is to train them to remember who we are and what God has done for us. Man, if Jonah had remembered... If Jonah had remembered that that he should have been, according to his way of doling out justice, that he should have been all bloated and nasty at the bottom of the sea, 
right? If he would have remembered that he was miraculously spared from all of that, then when he saw the beautiful grace of God being poured out on the nastiest people he knew, he wouldn't have been galled by it. He would have numbered himself with them. He would have stood beside them. Sister, brother, family. This is what Jonah teaches us. This is what Jonah teaches us, to number ourselves even with our enemies (laughs) as those who desperately need grace. But Jonah did not. (laughs) He did not. And so what does God do for old Jonah in his recalcitrance? (laughs) He chases old Jonah down a second time out into the desert where Jonah is sulking. Jonah has built himself a little booth for some shade and God makes three things happen to that booth. First, he makes this plant grow up in the night to give Jonah even more shade. That's the divine setup. Jonah is extremely delighted about the shade, but then God appoints a worm to eat the plant, to make it wither and go away. And then when the sun comes up, God appoints this scorching east wind to beat down on Jonah's head, (laughs) make him faint. He has taken Jonah to exactly the place where he wants Jonah. He knows what this will produce in Jonah, and Jonah does not disappoint. He says it again, kill me now, God. Kill me now, because it's better for me to be dead than to live. And then God asks this incredibly searching question that's about everything in Jonah's life. He says, do you do well to be angry for this plant? And Jonah, defiant as ever, says, yeah, God, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. Kill me now. And now God has chased Jonah, and he's chased us right to the place where he wants us. He says, you pity the plant, Jonah. You didn't labor for it. You didn't make it grow. It came up in a night. It went away in a night. And then God asked this incredible question. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left? There are more important things than your dumb plant, Jonah. God wants Jonah to know who he is. God wants Jonah to know who he loves and what he cares about the most. He's telling Jonah, Jonah, listen to me, man. I care for people who are all messed up and broken. I care for people who are violent. And I care for people who are rebellious. I care for your enemies, Jonah. And I care for people who run away from me. I have compassion on them. And I will be as patient and as gracious and as merciful as it takes to have them. And, you know, we know the the truth of this church. God's words here are not just words. It's not just talk. Because in order to save the rebellious and violent people of Nineveh, in order to save rebellious, self-righteous prophets... Someone definitely needed to pay. And here's what our God is like. Rather than choke it out of them, 
He pays. He pays. He steps in and takes the punishment of the violent and the rebellious and the angry and the self-righteous. He pays. In order to redeem the guilty, our God stands in their place. This is what Jesus does on the cross. This is what we have celebrated in Easter. He steps in and takes Jonah's place and the Ninevites' place and my place and your place. This is what our God is really like. This is the love with which you and I have been loved. Believe it. Because it is absolutely true. And that's what makes this open-ended question that God asks so amazing. This is, this is how the book ends, is with this question, should I not pity that great city? And, you know, we don't know how Jonah answered that question. And that's the point, really. The point is so that we can answer for ourselves. That's the invitation to us. And hopefully, hopefully we will see it rightly. What else in the world would you do, God? Because that's who you are. (laughs) And so in the midst of chasing that great city, God has also chased a silly prophet. And in chasing him, he chases us. And so we may, may we see him for who he is and cling to him by faith and be changed to look like him and to live like him and to love like him. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask that you you would do whatever you have to do (laughs) to help us to see you for who you really are. Gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster, and to see that that's not for somebody else. (laughs) That's for me. Help us to see it and to cling to it and to believe it and to have that belief sink deep into who we are and change the way that we live, even with our enemies, that we would be happy, like your son Jesus, to number ourselves with our enemies. Father, we ask that you would help us to see and believe, and we ask that you would do it for our good and for the good of this broken world around us. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.